Julie Mannix grew up in a family that had a lot of wealth from the outside. They looked like they had it together, a glamorous life. But in reality, most of the time, uh, Julie's parents traveled around the world, dropping Julie off at various boarding schools and hiring women to care for her and her brother. Julie said, uh, I learned how to live with my strange and glamorous parents, how to admire them, but I kept out of their way. In 1963, Julie was 19 years old, and uh, her parents brought her to a doctor for a physical just to see how she was doing. And uh, the doctor discovered something that Julie didn't even know, and that was the fact that she was pregnant. Rather than tell Julie, the doctor told her parents, who were mortified at the prospect that their daughter uh, was having a child out of wedlock. At the time, abortions were illegal in America unless the pregnancy threatened the life of the mother. So Julie's parents forced her into a mental ward where an abortion could be performed legally. Despite the tremendous pressure that Julie received from her parents, she refused to to sign the uh, abortion papers, and so her parents then moved her into a private psychiatric facility, um, then to a state hospital for the mentally disturbed and the criminally insane. Yet through it all, Julie refused to let the terrifying surroundings change her mind. She said, I just desperately wanted my child to live. I had no idea what would happen to my baby or to me as a result of my decision but I never felt such conviction before. And so after putting their daughter in a mental ward uh, and Julie pushing back that she wanted the baby, they left her in the state hospital for months until she gave birth to a baby girl on April 19, 1964. Julie, once she delivered the baby, was not allowed to hold the baby. But that didn't stop her from fiercely loving this little daughter that she named Amy, this daughter that she was forced to give up. She said, I signed the adoption papers. My heart ripped apart. I put the pin down, turned away, and on shaky legs, I left my baby behind. After that traumatic experience in the state hospital, after delivering the baby, giving her baby up for adoption, Julie parted ways with her parents. She moved away made it on her own, always with her daughter in mind. And Julie, in fact, tried to contact the adoption agency, you know, for updates about Amy, but uh, those files were sealed, so it didn't happen. Julie eventually married a man named Frank, and um, the couple talked about Amy. Uh, Julie shared the story, you know, what she had gone through, and on April 19th of every year, the two... Uh, Julie and her husband uh, celebrated her birthday without their daughter. Well, Julie didn't know it yet, but God was working in her daughter's life. A loving family had adopted Amy. They named her Kathleen Marie Whistler, and she was a tremendous gift to the family who had waited 10 years to adopt a child. Unlike Julie's upbringing in a wealthy, distant family, Kathy 
and her adopted siblings were close and they knew they were loved by their parents. Well, it wasn't until Kathy was grown and she herself had children that the desire for her came that she wanted to find who her biological parents were. And so she requested some background information from the agency that had handled her adoption, and she started the search, which ultimately brought her to Julie Mannix, her mother. She wrote a letter to the couple, which they were finally able to reconnect and have someone somewhat of a family reunion. She said, I never imagined I would find my biological parents, and yet here I am, cherished by two strong and thoughtful parents who worry when my kids are sick and who call for no reason. I feel as though we have never been apart. Now, when you look at Julie Mannix's story, the family that she was brought in, the parents that she had, the things that her parents did to her, uh, I don't think there's anybody in this auditorium this morning that could say, you know what, that's exactly what I went through. Pretty brutal. But it is possible that you have came up in a very, very turbulent home and there's scars in your life because of it. Well, this morning, as we continue to walk through the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes, first of all, to children, and then he writes to the parents who have children. So this morning, we're going to camp out in Ephesians chapter 6 of the first four verses. On the back of your program, there's an outline. You can fill in the blanks. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles on the back table. You can take it, keep it, read it, and apply it to your life. So let's look at Ephesians 6, uh, 1 through 4, and see what Paul, writing for the Lord, has to say about it. Verse 1, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. Paul transitions now after talking to the children, to the parents. Verse 4, fathers, parents, do not provoke your children to anger. By the way you treat them, rather bring them up in the, with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for every person that's in this auditorium this morning. We recognize that when we put our faith in you, Jesus, we become part of the family of God. We become adopted sons and daughters of a loving Heavenly Father. And Lord, we're grateful for that. So no matter what kind of home we grew up in, we can have a healthy relationship with our Heavenly Father. How cool that is. So Lord, we are grateful for the challenge that we have read. Help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I recognize, friends, that each one of us comes from a different background, different uh, setting, um, different parts of the, of the country, um, all unique. And even now, where you're at, uh, you might not have any children, um, you might not be married, you might be divorced, you might be married uh, with children, etc. 
Whatever the case may be, you can identify with this text, which is pretty cool. And uh, Paul has some good things to say to encourage each one of us in the process. Now, if we took a poll today and asked you your opinion about parenting, I'm sure we'd get a whole different (laughs) variety of thoughts about how that should look. And what I like about Ephesians 6 is that God is our creator, God is our heavenly father, and his opinion is worth listening to, don't you think? Yeah, so we can learn from from this and, and apply it to our lives. So number one in your notes, honor Christ as a child. Once again, Paul picks up the microphone and he's addressing the children in the church in Ephesus. And um, so he's saying, shooting the flare, all right, young people, children, this is for you. First of all, number one, obey, (laughs) whether you want to or not. Uh, The sub-point behind that is actions. And the point being, obeying your parents is an outward action. That's what happens. Now, I get it. There's, There's times as a child... You don't want to obey, but you obey anyway because you know it's the right thing to do. So your heart's not really in it. You're just kind of going through the motions. And that's what Paul is saying. First of all, you need to obey with your actions. Why? Because this is the right thing to do. That word obey means to, to hear under. It's the ability to listen and respond to the directions that are given to you. Now, what's cool, I think, about a family unit is that God wants you and I to learn how to obey those in authority. For example, the number one authority in all of the universe is God Almighty. He's at the top. So what God does, he gives you and I the privilege of being raised with a mother and father. They should model the heart of God in front of those children. So he's saying, I am not going to be there in the flesh, and so I am passing the mantle of authority to the father and the mother. And I'm doing that on purpose because when you have children, I want the children to submit to the authority that's over them and at home, to their mother and father. And a way of doing that in a very practical way is to obey what they want you to do. Because when you obey your mother and father, in essence, you're obeying God Almighty, which is pretty cool. So the discipline of obedience is one of the things we learn in families, and that's transferable. Because when we learn to obey our parents, when we go to school, we have a teacher. They are the ones with the authority. So God has the authority. He gives it to the parents. When you go to school, you have a teacher. And they have the authority. And when you get old enough to have a job, you have a boss who has the authority to tell you what to do, right? So for the rest of your life, we are always under authority. And God wants to make it simple for you and for me because he knows that when there's pushback against authority, it opens the door for rebellion. And rebellion is like witchcraft. When you rebel against authority, you are, in essence, opening the door for demonic activity in your life. And we can vote on that this morning. How many of you would like the door of demonic activity 
to be present in your life. I, I think most of us say, no, no, I don't, I don't want that to happen. Well, that's exactly what happens, and God recognizes that. And that's why Paul is writing, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. Now, Paul recognizes that a child can put their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul also recognizes that the faith of a parent doesn't transfer to the child. You say, because you're living in a Christian home, a a home where God is honored, it doesn't mean you automatically become a follower of Christ. Paul recognizes that God gave human beings this tremendous gift, and that is the freedom to choose. God does not hit a button in heaven and say, you, whether you want to or not, you're going to become a follower of Christ. No, no. He's given you and I the freedom to say no to God or say yes to God. That's the choice. But I'll tell you what, if you push against God, there's a price to be paid. And so Paul is saying, uh, because it's the best thing to do. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Now, some of you might be pushing back and say, you know what, I... um, yeah, I, I think I should obey God, but I don't think I should obey God in everything that he wants me to do. You know, there was a king in the Old Testament by the name of Saul that kind of did that as well. He thought he was king and he could disobey God, you know, when he thought it was appropriate or when it was convenient. And so the, the prophet Samuel came to him and had a conversation with this man who thought partial obedience was obedience. No, no, no. Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15, 22, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And we can take it to the next level. Partial obedience is disobedience. And so as a parent, when we're we're raising children, how many of you would say, well, kids, you don't have to obey me all the time, and I'm okay with that, you know? because I want everybody to be happy in my house. Partial obedience, man. You pick and choose whatever you want to obey. I'm, I'm all right with that. How many of you would run that by your kids? No, no. I would hope that as a parent you would say, I want you as my son and daughter to obey me completely. Uh, we've had this conversation in our home over the years, you know, if, if you love me as your father, your mother, you're going to obey me. That, that's just a practical way of, of living it out. And, and that comes from God himself. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to obey my commands, right? And, and yet we as human beings, we, we, like to, we like to pick and choose how we want to run our lives. Partial obedience is flat-out disobedience. It's that simple. So, I'm, uh, I'd like to encourage you this morning, if you're, if you're playing that game with God, you're playing that game with your parents, uh, it's time to close the book on that and say, I'm going to go all out in obeying God, and I'm going to go all out in obeying my parents. Number two, honor, sub-point attitudes. Verse two, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Honoring your parents involves an inner attitude. You can obey your parents without honoring them, you know? You can just go through the motions and say, yeah, I'm obeying them, but I really don't want to. 
So honor means you're, 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 you're joining in and saying, yep, I'm behind them, I'm respecting them, I'm honoring them with my attitude. My actions, my attitudes line up in the process. So to obey means to do what another person says to do. To honor means to respect and love. And it comes with a promise. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So Paul goes back to the Old Testament, to the Ten Commandments, and he's, he's landing on the fifth commandment where he's talking about children obey your father and your mother. We'll hit that promise in a moment. In the first gathering, I, I mentioned this, and I'll, I'll submit this to you as well, that when I read verse 2, and then you go into verse 3, um, on a tail end that uh, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on earth, uh, we know uh, at Life Church we've, we've, got, we've got parents that have lost children. And I'm fully aware of that. And I'm fully aware of the pain that parents carry when they've lost a child. And so when you read this verse, you could just blow it up and blow it out and say, God, you know, what's, what's the deal with this? And become bitter and angry at God. But I can tell you this as well, that I've lived long enough to realize that we live in a broken world Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. And that's not going to be correct, you know, corrected. Justice will not be served until we get to heaven one day. And so you need to recognize, friends, that um, when life does not make sense, even in the midst here of this honoring, this attitude, Obeying my parents with a promise. I mean, it's easy to sign off. I'm going to obey my parents because I want to have a long life. You know, I want to have an easy life. I want everything to go my way. That's how we think in America. But that's not always the case. We have to come to the point in our lives that, Lord, my life is in your hands. I'm trusting you with my life. And when life throws all kinds of questions at me, like, why, God, why? It doesn't make sense to me. God, I'm going to grip onto you, and I'm not going to let go. Because I know this one thing. You will not abandon me through it. You will walk me through the process. And I believe you will make me a better person because of it. I've told this story before about Darlene Rose, who was a POW during World War II. I I got to tell you something, man. I've that book, her story, has made a place in my my life. It, it, it almost haunts me, to be honest with you. That this woman who put her faith in Jesus Christ as a little girl, who trained to be a missionary, who went overseas to Asia with her husband, and then World War II broke out, and her husband is taken from her, and he dies in the process in a camp in. Darlene herself is tortured and living in horrific conditions where she could say, God, what about this? Everything's going to go well for me, you know? I'm going to live a long life. My life is, is on the line right now. No, no, no. She didn't go down that road 
being angry and ticked off at God. She instead postured herself and she said, God, is it possible that something bigger is going on in my life that I do not understand? That I have the opportunity to be in this prison camp to be able to tell this camp director, this camp commander, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that why you have me here? You see, that's how she looked at it. And that's really quite simple, isn't it? Instead of, you know, it's all about me. No, there's a bigger picture. There's a world that needs to hear about Jesus Christ. And when those questions of why come up, and man, it doesn't make sense, I just want to encourage you to grip on to God. And he will see you through. So that leads us to number three. Enjoy, if you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you. And you will have a long life on the earth. Doesn't it sound good? Huh? That sounds really nice, you know. Yeah, that's what I want. I'm, I'm going to honor my dad and my mom so I can, you know, have a good life. And I can live a long life. I want that. Well, we just addressed that kind of thinking. But I can tell you this, that I think what Paul's getting to, and he understands fully that life does not make sense at times. That no matter what we're going through, we need to rest in God's embrace. There is something about when when life is falling apart, when all hell breaks loose in your life, and you're saying, God, I, I honored my mom, my dad. I obeyed them. What's this all about? What's this things will go well for you and you'll have a long life? What's this all about, God? First of all, I think a long life can be transferable to heaven itself. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become, like I mentioned earlier, a son and daughter of God, which in turn, this life is temporary here. So when you look at the scheme of things of a long life, eternity is very long. And that's where you have to place your life. Psalm 119, 165, those who love your instructions have great peace and do not stumble. Here's the deal. When life does not make sense, And things are not going well for you. And you did what the Bible said. There is a peace that you experience in your life that will help you bring that will help bring you through it to the other side. I'm telling you, I've seen it. Those who love your instructions, Lord, we obey you, we love you, we want to serve you, not because of all the benefits down here, but because I love you in in this relationship. I get to experience your peace. And I want to tell you something. We can rest in God's embrace. Because he's not going anywhere. Psalm 69, 19. Praise the Lord. Praise God our Savior. For each day he carries us in his arms. There is nothing like being held in the arms of God daily. What a gift that is. And when you're struggling, and when you're asking all kinds of questions to God, he is carrying you in his arms. And when you get to heaven, you can ask him all of those questions that have been piling up over your lifetime. So now Paul, after talking to the children about obeying and honoring and enjoying, you know, resting in God's promise for your life, number two, he shifts the focus to the parents. Honor Christ as a parent. 
Verse 4, fathers, and you can add mothers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. George Barna, he's a pollster uh, in the Christian uh, community, wrote the book Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions. And in the fly cover of the book, um, he's got a pastoral advisory comment on it. And it says, the enemy has plans for your children. Do you? The enemy has plans for your children. Do you? Well, let's take that a step further. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says he has, God has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. What's that look like? First of all, you need to know that God put a soul inside every human being. When he knitted you together inside your mother's womb, he planted eternity inside every single human being. And that eternity cannot be destroyed. Cremation cannot destroy it. Plane crashes can't destroy it. That soul is stamped for eternity. What does that mean? That means that you will never die eternally. You will either live in heaven with the Lord forever, or you will live forever away from the Lord in hell forever. It's one or the other. That's what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says. That's what George Barna is talking about here, that the enemy has plans for your kids. Do you? Because there is very simply a spiritual battle raging for the souls of your children. And I can tell you, uh, with our kids, at a, at a, early on, when Debbie and I were, were parents, we realized, man, that there, there's a battle raging. There, your home is not a campground. It's a battlefield. And we need God's help consistently to give us the wisdom that we need to deal with those attacks from the enemy. John Lennon you know, in the world's eyes, he was looked at as being successful, you know? He had it all together. But how many of you know when you go inside a family, uh, you, can, you can present something on the outward side, but when you go inside a family, you find out, ah, maybe it wasn't exactly what it was looking like to everybody else. Julian, John's son, uh, critiqued his father, and he put it this way. I felt my dad was a hypocrite. Dad could talk about peace and love out loud to the world, but he could never show it to the people who supposedly meant the most to him, his wife and his son, Julian talking about himself. How can you talk about peace and love and have a family in bits and pieces, no communication, adultery, divorce? Who You, you just can't do it, not if you are being true and honest with yourself. Now, Julian's not even a follower of Christ, and yet he is realizing the the hypocrisy behind the lifestyle of his father. Realizing that there is a battle raging in the family. And so in Psalm 127.3, we know that children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. That's great news. How fun it is to get up at... 12 o'clock, 1.30, 3 o'clock, 
4.30 when you think that your child is an incredible reward from God, a gift. Yeah, he wants to keep you on your toes. That's kind of what he wants, right? But to realize that children are a, a gift from the Lord. Why? Because, friend, when, when you as a human being uh, no longer breathes air on this planet, the only thing that you can bring to heaven with you besides yourself would be the children that they themselves put their faith in Christ. See? To be with your children forever in heaven. So that's the goal that we should have. And so uh, Paul is saying that we, um, we need to have a target, we need to have a bullseye on how we address parenting. Because if we don't have a target, if we just kind of go into it and say, you know, we're going to deal with, with parenting as it comes, uh, whether it be passive or reactive, you know what, it's not going to work out well for you. What Paul is trying to tell us here this morning is that as a parent, we need to be proactive. We need to be ahead of the game. We need to have a plan. And that plan is, I want my children to look like Christ. And guess what? For my children to look like Christ, I've got to look like Christ in front of them. So going with the flow, you know, going with the culture, that's, that's not going to make it. So today, once again, we think, well, if my child is athletic, if my child is popular, if my child is well-educated, they're going to be successful. You want to know something? It's a dead-end street. Being an athlete, being popular, being educated will not get you into heaven. And I'll tell you straight up, man, I I can look down the street on, on where I live, my neighborhood, and I'll tell you flat out, parents on my block do not invest at all in their children spiritually. There are other priorities. I see what goes on, man, you know, other things. It's everything else but God. At the end of the day, that child and the parent will stand before God and give an account of their life. Everything else is that's secondary. What's most important is that child has been trained in the things of God. So, don't provoke. Paul's talking about two instructions in verse 4. Aren't you glad for that? Two instructions. One don't and one do. Isn't that cool? You don't, you don't need to have a PhD, you know, to try and figure out what Paul's trying to say here. He says, don't do this and do this. It's pretty easy. He says, he says in verse 4, do not provoke your children. What does do not mean? <laughs> it, means, it means do not. It means, in fact, we can simplify it. Don't. Don't provoke your kids, Right? So the word provoke means to rouse, to wrath, exasperate, anger. And, and what's that look like? Well, unclear boundaries, you know, you, you, you just kind of say, uh, how late is too late? How short is too short? Um, uh, how much is too much? You know, it's kind of ambiguous. Well, if you don't give clear instructions and directions and boundaries in a child's life, um, as you know, they push the envelope. And that's, you want to make it clear. Inconsistent discipline, you know. 
One day you're up, the next day you're down. I, yesterday you could do that, today you can't do that. That's a mixed message for a child. Unbalanced criticism. If you're insecure as a parent and you just pound your kids with criticism, uh, not good. For every critical tweak that you give your child, you should give 10 affirmative words. Unreasonable demands. Maybe your child is not gifted in a certain area, and yet you're pushing them, you know, because you're trying to relive your life through them. That's not good. Unspoken expectations. It's another one. You know, you got all these expectations in your file, but you never told your child about it. And if they don't fulfill them, man, you're ticked off about it. Undeserved and unresolved anger. That's another one, you know. So many times you hear of men, fathers, that have a terrible relationship with their biological father and that anger boils over to their own home because they've never resolved it. You know, we get, we get yelled at by the boss and we come home and we yell at our kids. You know, that's it's not healthy. You know, Jerry West, the uh, Hall of Fame basketball player, talks about my life's been pretty tormented for me. I think at the point in my life, that's after he retired from basketball, it's important to talk about it. He said, my relationship with my father was very abusive. I was afraid to come home. I didn't want to come home. I felt completely useless. I described myself to friends of myself as a stray dog. He said, I finally got to the point where I had to stand up to my father. I did get to the point where I became very defiant because I was beaten by, with the belt by him throughout most of my early years. And it was finally when I saw something that he did to my sister that I had to stand up to him. And as an 11-year-old boy, Jerry said to his dad, if you ever touch me again, I'm going to kill you. And he was serious about it because he kept a loaded shotgun under his bed. His dad did not touch him again. Jerry talked about basketball being an escape for him and the Los Angeles Lakers became family. The pain. On the outside, this guy looked like he had it together, but inside he's wounded deeply. Undeserved, unresolved anger. Number two, Paul says, teach. Love and teach. Love and teach. Don't provoke, but do this. Do this. Love and and teach. What's that look like? Fathers, parents, don't provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Romans eight twenty nine. Paul puts it this way, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. That's exactly what God's goal is for your children, that they would become like his son. That's goal, God's goal for your life as well. For that to happen to your children, it's got to happen to you first as a parent, that you yourself become like Jesus. You're not Jesus, but you model his character. So we need to practice what we preach. That's huge. That's huge. Children tend not to do what we say, they tend to do how we act. Yes, they do. 
Social psychologist Albert Bandura put it this way, the most powerful educational tool on the planet is not a book. It's not a speech. It's not a program. It's not an online training class. He says, it's modeling, providing an observable pattern of behavior and doing it consistently. And I would like to submit to you this morning, as a parent, do you want your children to turn out just like you? Hmm? Do you want your children to turn out just like you? The way you live, the choices you make, how you... Live your life in front of others. It's a good question, isn't it? Well, then it's a good it's good that uh, we follow in behind Christ and say, Lord, that's me. I want to be Christ-like. You love your spouse as your primary relationship on the planet. You treat your children with grace and with discipline. And there's there's five words that would be very welcome in every home. I'm sorry, and please forgive me. And as a father, I can tell you that I've gone to my children and had to say I'm sorry. And then I've had to say, please forgive me. Because there have been times when I have sensed the Holy Spirit tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you need to go to and ask for forgiveness. Maybe the way I responded to them. Maybe the way I overreacted to them. Maybe whatever the case may be, it wasn't honoring to the Lord. And I think as a parent, when we model that, asking for forgiveness, saying you're sorry, it helps facilitate that response in your children as well. They're liberated to say, I'm sorry, and please forgive me. So, disciplining your children effectively. Tommy, put down those scissors, the mom says to her four-year-old. No, I don't want to, said Tommy. You do what I tell you right now. No. I'm going to count to three. The magic numbers. One, two. Tommy, I mean it. I mean it right now. Do you need a timeout? Tommy stomps his foot and pouts, refusing to obey. And suddenly the four-year-old has an upper hand in his house with his adult mother. You've seen that happen. I've seen it out in public, man. I have to walk away. Because that's not the way it should be. Because when your child turns his back and plays deaf, and you have to forcibly take those scissors from his hand, that's the easy part. Getting those sharp scissors away from him now has taken a back seat to a larger picture. You told your child to do something, and he disobeyed, so what are you going to do about it? Hmm? They own you. That's not the way it should be. So, what needs to happen? I think... Uh, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 puts a nice spin on it. My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord delight corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. So, so when you look at this, the Lord disciplines those he loves and a father corrects a child in whom he delights. 
So that was kind of the basis on how we, we disciplined our children. We would always preface it, you disobeyed me, which means I have to discipline you because I love you. Because you disobeyed me, you're telling me you want to be disciplined. See? And they'd say, yeah, you're right. You're right. Proverbs 13, 24, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. We'd always tell our children, we love you. Because we love you, we have to discipline you. If we didn't discipline you, that meant we hated you. That's exactly what that verse says. And so, um, no, no screaming, no yelling. Everything's under control. Uh, when, I was, when I was a kid, my dad used the belt and my mom used the wooden spoon. And my mom broke a lot of wooden spoons on me. And in fact, uh, there would be film of her running after me with the spoon in hand as I got a little older. Well, I want to tell you something. God created the body for discipline. All you have to look is the backside of a human body, and that was designed for discipline, friends. And I can tell you in our culture today, there are parents, even Christian parents, that are standing up against this form of discipline. In the state of Wisconsin, you cannot use a belt and you cannot use a spoon. They will stand with a parent when they discipline their children with an open hand, which I think is unfortunate. I think it should be a neutral object. And we would also discipline our children three times. One, two, three. They knew there was a start and they knew there were a finish. We weren't yelling or screaming. You disobeyed. So therefore, we have to discipline you because we love you. And then once that happened, after we disciplined them, we held them, and then we told them we loved them. And we'd have a short prayer with them, you know? So the child had a clear conscience. The relationship was in order. It was healthy. But parents today, you know, we get so distracted. You know, we're tired. It's tough. How about it? And we didn't do it perfectly. But it's tough to stay on top of it. But God's word, we need to follow through. So, loving your child enough to discipline them. Three actions for the parents. You pray for them. Hey, pray for them. You you pray for them for the rest of your life. That's just the way it is, Lord, because why there's, there is an assignment by the enemy to destroy their life. Two, give them to God. Lord, I need, I'm just going to give them to you. It doesn't relinquish my responsibility, but I'm giving them to you. Use them. Speak to them. And three, wait. You wait. What do you wait for? Well, like the prodigal son, he wanted to, hey, Dad, I don't want to live with you anymore. I'm checking out. His dad said, I'm sorry to hear that, son, but you have the freedom to go. What do you think the father did while his son was gone? I'm sure the father prayed for his son. God, he's in your hands. I'm praying that you work in his life. And then we see in Luke 15, 17, that prodigal son, it says, finally he came to his senses. You see, he finally came to his senses. Can I tell you something? My two older sisters walked away from God after high school. But they both finally came to their senses and they returned to the Lord. 
I saw that happen firsthand. You wait as they're placed in God's hands. And Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 9, uh, 4 through 9, on the bottom of your notes, you've got it right there. Um, the responsibility of a parent, man. Your home should be God-friendly. Your home should be a place where Jesus is not embarrassed on what's on television or what's the language being used in your home or how you treat one another. Jesus should feel right at home. Should have a chair for him. Boom, right there. On February 19th, 1979, there was a small plane that crashed into the Ontario Peak in the San Gabriel Mountains in northern Los Angeles County, California. It was a 10-hour story of death, courage, and survival. The passengers of the Cessna 172 included the pilot, his wife, an attorney, and the attorney's 11-year-old son. The pilot and the attorney were killed on impact on that crash. Norm, the son, knew his father had perished. And so he and the woman huddled in the snow near the plane for seven hours, hoping for somebody to come and rescue them. And finally, after the cold just wearing them down, they decided they had to get off that mountain or freeze to death. And so shortly after they started making movement away from the plane, the woman fell 350 feet to her death. So the boy, 75 pounds, 11 years old, all alone. Both his hands are broken. He's bloody. He's lost, freezing. His father lying dead a few feet away from him. What's he supposed to do? He never gave up. He slid down the mountain on the seat of his pants, clutching a stick that he used as a break with his fractured hands. When he started sliding too fast, he stick that stick into the snow and it would slow him down enough to break. And about 5 p.m. in the afternoon, he was found in a village at the foot of a mountain, rushed to the hospital, wet, bloody, exhausted, but he was alive. Before his release from the hospital, there was a news conference and the boy encountered a barrage of questions about what had happened to him. How did you find the courage to go on? Didn't you feel like quitting? On and on and on, the questions came in. And Norm simply said one thing. I'm alive today because my dad taught me never to give up. What is it that you want to leave your children after you're gone? To never give up in their walk with Jesus Christ. That's what's most important. And is that happening in your life. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity we have to be part of your family. And Lord, we know there's all kinds of dysfunction in homes and families. There was in your home when you grew up. Your own brothers didn't believe in you. But Lord, we're grateful that we can put our faith in Christ so that we have a loving Heavenly Father who loves us unconditionally. And Lord, this morning, the takeaway from Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 is that we should model Jesus no matter where we are or who we're with. 
that's what's most important. And so, Lord, I pray for the children. I pray for the parents here today that you will help each one of us, Lord, to do that very thing. We need your help, Lord. We need your grace. We need your wisdom. We sure do. So thank you, Lord, for making the difference in our homes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.